Paleo nerds. Two grown men. One plays with dolls. The other draws dinosaurs with crayons. Together they explore the prehistoric past with experts from across the globe. Paleo nerds. Because deep time will blow your mind. It's really good to see you again, man. See you? This is a podcast. I can only hear you. Well, I, I see you in my mind's eye. What can I say, you know? And uh, <laughs> here you are inside my head. And uh, I have a mental picture of you there in Ojai. And I'm sitting here in my lovely house on top of the hill in Ketchikan, Alaska, on the island of Revilla Gato. And how? I thought it was Revilla Hejedo. You know, I'm going to leave that to my Spanish-speaking friends to correct you. Uh, I would slaughter it. We locals call it Revilla for short. So have the king salmon already run or what? No, the kings are actually just starting to show up, and they've opened up king salmon fishing here in the south, and this is the year that we get to keep all those salmon to ourselves because it's pretty much just Alaskans up here. Yeah, because the cruise ships have stopped running. So June is when the king salmon arrived, and there's three more runs of of salmon, right? Well, we have... five species of salmon here in Alaska. And the sequence more or less goes king salmon here in Southeast Alaska, king salmon. Which are called coho. No, kings are also called Chinooks. Oh, sorry, sorry, okay. Dude. (laughs) All right, so kings, kings are called Chinooks. The next one comes are silvers, which are- They come in August. The next, uh, next up are usually the humpies, also known as the pink salmon. Humpies, because the males get these huge humps on their backs. When they go into fresh water and they're ready to spawn. And about the same time, the chums, also known as dogs, show up. And then uh, up in Bristol Bay, there's... Why are they called dogs? There have been different theories behind that. They get these big, big teeth and they kind of look like a dog when they're spawning. (laughs) But also, they're... They're not highly respected, which is kind of weird because they're wonderful fish, but I've also heard that they call them dog salmon because you have to feed them to your dogs. What, what do you mean they're not respected? What are, do, are they in- there is a hierarchy of salmon, and uh, fishermen are always arguing what is the best, but there is a great hierarchy. Kings are generally respected the most, and then there's... Because they're the biggest. Because they're the biggest and the oiliest and the best tasting. Okay, wait, wait. We've, we've digressed. There's five species. There's first comes king, which are called Chinook. Then comes, then comes, just name them and tell me. <laughs> then come the humpies. Uh, okay. Uh, so next are the humpies, also known as pinks. Then there are chums and dogs, same thing. And then there are reds, also called sockeye. And then come the, uh, the silvers, also known as cohos. Five salmon, ten names. Right. There's also an extinct one in the same genus, Oncorhynchus. The saber-toothed salmon is Oncorhynchus ah. rastrosus, and that is a gigantic right. salmon. Prehistoric, went extinct about two million years ago, but reached... Six feet long. Eight feet, man. Eight feet and probably wow. even bigger. Vertebrae the size of a marlin. Anadromous. Beautiful wow. fossils of it found down, you know, actually in your neighborhood. Wow. And then uh, all the way up the coast. So, yeah, there you go. And what's what's the biggest king salmon you caught? My very first king salmon was the biggest one. I fought it for like half an hour, 41 pounds. I beat you 48 pounds. Uh, whoa. 
Yeah, on the Theodore River in the Mount Susitna drainage out of Anchorage. Oh, wow. Congratulations. It's probably all spawned out, though, right? Uh, what does that mean? Spawned out. When they get in the rivers, their flesh is kind of, and they, you know. Oh, no. This is uh, maybe two miles from the Cook Inlet. Two miles as the crow flies, maybe three miles with the bend of the river. Wow. So they literally were just entering fresh water. 48 pounds. That's incredible. The, the tide would come in and, and flood this river, and then it would go back out, and the river would go back down to maybe uh, a foot or two. And then when the tide starts coming back in is when the salmon would come in with the help of the tide. And you'd see these Vs in this shallow water, the V, like a miniature little torpedo of these massive 40, 50-pound fish. This is back in the, in the 80s. These massive fish, and they'd see you and, and spook and go swimming right by you. And sometimes you wouldn't know they were there. And suddenly this massive creature would shoot past you and would startle you because you'd be there for hours with no action. And then suddenly, bam! And you're standing in the river with a fishing rod, right? We're standing yeah. in the river, yeah. Yeah, on these sandbars in just, you know, half a foot of water. <laughs> Well, imagine a 400-pound saber-tooth salmon, man. <laughs> <laughs> Chomping on that leg. I was spiking you, yeah. Okay, so uh, have you read the paleo news, Ray? Because you are a paleo nerd. I am a paleo nerd. I watch my Facebook feed to see if my paleo nerd friends post something. But, uh, yeah, I've been seeing a few articles here and there. What do you got, Dave? What's new, man? Okay, well, I'm going to see if you can define a, a word for me. Do you know what a colite is? A colite. Cololite. Cololite. Don't look it up. No, you may not Google it. No, no, no. A cololite. Is that something like um, a nightlight or something? Um, coprolite? Is it <laughs> coprolite, <laughs> coprolite? Oh. Are we talking fossil poop? No. A coprolite is fossil poop. Yes. A cololite is the fossilized stomach contents. I think yeah. I know where you're going with this because I know this news article. Well, in Alberta in 2011, <laughs> the most complete fossil of a notosaur, which is a type of, I always called them ankylosauruses, but they're not called ankylosaurus. That's what I called it as a kid. You know that big armored dinosaur with a big club tail? They're really called, what is it called, Ray? Ankylosaurs. Ankylosaurs. That's right. I used to call them ankylosaurus as a kid, too. I've been practicing this one. It's uh, Borealopelta. That's gnarly, dude. Okay, so that's its Latin that's name? That's its Latin name, Borealopelta. And what about Borealopelta? So this uh, Borealopelta. Like I have any idea what I'm saying. This notosaur, which is one of the most complete mummified dinosaurs ever, and you can see it's there was a Ghostbuster reference. Wasn't yeah, there? yeah, it looks it's yeah it's badass looking. It's got this sort of demonic looking head. Yeah, and it's got a big armored body, and so much was preserved the uh, the skin impressions and internal organs, and so some scientists recently published a paper. They were able to get the cololite, the fossilized stomach contents, slice it really thin. They were able to identify a plant 
remains and the actual species of plants. Even though they were able to identify what this last meal of this notosaur was, they can't say that it's indicative of all notosaurs. It's only to that particular individual. That's uh, scientific hedging there, but uh, what was its last, what was this notable notosaur? Huh? That's pretty good. Uh, what was its last meal, Dave? Greens. <laughs> A salad. Salad. Uh, that was yeah. in the early Cretaceous, and uh, there weren't a lot of flowering plants, so I'm dying to know, man. What did it eat? They're pretty sure he's... Uh, ferns. Uh, there were ferns. Yeah, they were ferns or something Yeah, it was like ferns. That. that was actually 80% ferns, man. No, you're saying... Right. But here's what's weird. This thing got this thing died, floated out to sea, right. sank in salt water, got covered with mud for the incredible preservation. What are the odds of that happening? Well, the odds are actually, you know, that happens every now and then. There's actually a and that, Kirk Johnson, uh, director of the Smithsonian Museum of Natural History, and a good friend of mine, coined the phrase "float and bloat," and I love that phrase ah. because it, it's a creature that dies. It's out by the seashore, dies. Probably a wistful, lonely death by the seashore, and then it floats out to sea. But that notosaur from the oil sands out in western Alberta is absolutely stunning because everything was there. But yeah, the float and bloat yeah. happens every now and then. There's one from Kansas. There's a nice float and bloat situation down. The only dinosaur bone ever found in Washington State is a float and bloat found in the uh, San Juan Islands on a beach with all a bunch of ammonites wow. around it. And then there's a wow. chunk of dinosaur. So that's pretty cool. That's pretty cool. Float and boat. Float and bloat. No. Bloat. Float and bloat. Yeah, like float my boat, but yeah. All right, so we have a really cool guest. You and I both know him and have spent some serious time uh, fishing with him in Craig, Alaska, which is the outer kind of part of Prince of Wales Island where you have access to the great wide Pacific Ocean. Uh, it's not uh, on the inland Inside passages passage. on the outside, yeah. Yeah, it's on the outside. And then uh, we also spent two weeks on a glorious trip floating down the Amazon with 24 other paleontologists. Yeah, paleo nerds and scientists and, and uh, cool people. In 2009, yeah, we went down uh, the Amazon with them. Yeah. I went on a trip. But you've known him longer than, of course, I yeah, have. Yeah, I met him a long time ago, about 20 years ago. I went. He was my roommate once in the Amazon, and you know how terrible that must have been for him. <laughs> oh, my God, yeah, you're snoring. So uh, he is an amazing sculptor and an artist and uh, purveyor of uh, biological specimens uh, as far as recreating them for museums and private collections. It is impeccable, the stuff. He works in bronze. He works in fiberglass. And uh, I want to ask him about this National Geographic documentary I saw years ago where he was the one that built this giant crocodile, right? A sarcosuchus, what do they call it? Sarcosuchus, the, the super croc. Yeah, that's right, the super croc. He built it, and he built it to scale. And uh, that was Gary Stab. Gary Stab, And uh, Stab is absolutely an incredible artist. Uh, I, I can't think of anyone else who does life-size dinosaurs for a living, and he's out in Missouri doing this incredible work. So, All right, well, let's uh, bring him on the old-fashioned wireless. Let's call him up, Dave. See what he's up to. All right. Hey. Hey, Gary. Great to see you guys. Hey, Gary, man. How you doing? Well, you know, it's uh, a nice, quiet time in the studio. So productive, quiet time is productive time, which is, is very nice. 
Now, Ray uses his uh, artistic world very compartmentalized. I'm blown away by how you use it like a job. He goes to the studio for a certain amount of hours per day, regardless, and gets really pissed off if I bug him during those times. Do you have those, <laughs> those type of hours? Uh, I have. I, I go at it in an all-in kind of wheelbarrow of hours effort. So I have a tendency to work really irregular hours but a whole lot of them so that's kind of how it works for me i i if i am threatened by a deadline um coming up i will you know i'll be up super early middle of the night roll in work in go back cook breakfast for my wife and, and then go back to work wow so you you're not a nine to five guy you're as as the creativity and the deadlines dictate it you are out there yeah, and you know, and that as you both know, being artists yourselves, and I have to, I'm going to just get this out of the way because you guys are also my heroes and my create my creative muses. So this is, I feel, I am actually sweating in 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 the process <laughs> of talking to you both. So I want to get that out of the way. And there's a huge amount of respect for what it's, you guys do. Thank you. It's the mutual admiration society here. Uh, but you are the most amazing, prolific sculptor, artist, recreation of all things biological, past and present, with such alarming detail that your full-size dinosaurs and your little miniature ants and your glass jellyfish look alive. Thank you. That's very kind. It's an incredible privilege to work on subjects for museums, and it's such a diversity of of subject that's the I think this is the most uh, entrancing part of it is that you get it you get to cover so much ground and you learn so much on every single project yeah we are basically a, a paleo nerd show so you've done a lot of stuff like uh, you spent uh, time alone with King Tut and Peruvian mummies you've been to Pompeii you've been to China you're global travelers it's not just dinosaurs in your world is it yeah, it's not just paleontological stuff. It's also archaeological. So I have had been lucky enough to be commissioned to recreate mummies. Wait so. a minute. You hung out with our mother. What? Lucy. Also, Lucy, uh, the Australopithecus afarensis, right? <laughs> Isn't she our mother? Uh, she, she is our mom. So uh, she is one of, a, one of our, one member of our very complex family tree. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, just such an extraordinary project to work on. So I was asked by the Houston Museum of, of Nature and Science to reconstruct uh, a fleshed version of Lucy that would travel next to her fossils on an exhibit about Ethiopia. And uh, the literature that I had to digest in order to work on that is you could stack taller than she is. I mean, she's only, she's right at about four feet tall. Lucy is one of our earliest human relatives. She's an Australopithecus afarensis. She's about 3.2 million years old, and her discovery was so important because it upset our entire process for understanding human evolution because her fossil demonstrated that early humans walked upright before developing bigger brains. We're all most likely related to her, and she's our great 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 grandmother. It was one of the most intimidating projects I've ever worked on because so she looks many. real. She looks like a, a hominid, our ancient ancestor, standing there 
was that foam latex or was that uh no it has to my my goal when you're creating things for museum is that um you know i have this sort of what i call the 100 year rule so if you can you have to be able to make things that are going to be archival i essentially have to beat them to the grave right so they have to last have to last as long as we can possibly uh, (laughs) as they can so uh so i can't use things like foam latex and that deteriorates a very short amount of time yeah it does so we use epoxies for the most part and resins that we that are kind of tried and true as as archival materials i love that phrase beat them to the grave that's really cool <laughs> uh actually yeah you, you know bronze is the thing i've read that bronze would be one of the last things bronze is our eternal so you've done a bunch of those too right i have uh, yeah and i love as i go, get a little bit older and i understand the sort of uh uh, the nature of, of what you create and, and that it will be well, for, for better or worse around for a really long time that uh, that bronze is a really neat thing. It has gravity. It has that you just say the name plastic bronze, you know, which one, which one would you rather have? Uh, and so it's also one of the only materials that looks better over time, I think. So with a little bit of hand, you know, a little polishing and so the acids on our hands, actually patina, the, the bronze, the bronze is primarily copper with a little bit of nickel added to it. And it, uh, it really takes on the environment um, that it's in. So if it's close to the ocean, of course, it gets these beautiful greens and, and hand wear on it. It looks really neat. Now, wait, you're in your studio right now, right? Yep. Yep. Describe your studio. What are you looking at? So I've got, I'm up in my office because it's the the most quiet place that I have, but um, I just recently moved to this studio and it is- uh, It's a barn, isn't it a barn in the middle of Kansas or Missouri? Missouri, yeah, yeah. And it's funny that I moved here because Missouri is basically, we have one dinosaur here. And uh, so (laughs) we have a dinosaur that someone found and it was back. uh, Now wait, is it a a judge currently sitting on the court or is it- (laughs) It's a hadrosaur. Wait, so I want you to, well, for you to walk in the front door of your studio, describe your studio. What's in it right now and, and what yeah. does it look like? Is it massive? Are there tools? Are there vats of copper, molten? <laughs> <laughs> it's true. It's a really big warehouse space because if you make life-size dinosaurs, you need a lot of room. And so we have uh, tools. We can basically do just about everything. I have a small foundry so I can pour metal. I have all the all of the tools you you need to build metal armatures wood armatures so we have a small wood shop metal shop mold making and casting room and then mold storage alone is about three thousand square feet just just to store the molds that i've made from previous sculptures do you keep the mold of a of a full size uh a patamata purportosaurus (laughs) what what was that giant long neck thing you built years ago for to sit in front of a museum I uh, built a couple life-size long necks. So I did a, a life-size Brachiosaurus, and then I did a life-size Camarasaurus. You keep also. those molds? When we're when I'm doing really big sculptures like that, it doesn't make sense to actually make a mold of it, but it makes sense to mold parts of it. So what now the process we're doing is I'll do a small-scale sculpture of it and get the scientific sign-off on the small-scale sculpture. And then from that point, we'll do a 3D laser scan of it and then mill that in-house. So I have a CNC 4x8 uh, bed CNC machine that will cut that dinosaur out in sections and then we glue it all together. 
an all welded ar armature for the inside of it. And then we put an aesthetic skin on it so it doesn't look like a big block of dock foam, but it has all that, you know, the kind of beautiful subtleties of skin and coloration that you hope for in a museum model. Wow, Gary, your, your shop must be full of the most coolest stuff. I've accumulated a lot of reference materials and I'm just super interested in all natural history. So, you know, if I happen to find a, you know, a fox on the side of the road, um, I'll, I'll pick up that roadkill fox and I'll dissect it and I'll make a mold of it and I'll make a cast of it. Let's go back to your early days. Cause you know, I've seen you when you were in the Amazon, you were the guy going over and picking up the tarantula. You were the guy wrestling the caiman. You were the guy just grabbing everything and, and looking at it. I was raised in Nebraska. My folks uh, were, I was lucky enough to have access to a, a farm on a river. So I spent a ton of time just running around as a wild child. Um, it has been said that I have a near terminal interest in nature um, because I <laughs> put myself in position. I have to touch things to look at them and hold them and so the, the the problem of course therein lies the danger that nature brings to our hands Crikey. Um, <laughs> right but it's that kind of that that crazy discovery thing you can catch something i was doing this yesterday with some snakes i'm like i'm 52 years old i believe i'm still leaping into the grass to catch snakes on the way home from work um, pull them out so I can look at them, uh, check out how this works. How does this work with that? And then see how they, you know. Do you check out. to see if they're venomous first or you just grab uh, the heads? I'm very familiar with all the species, right. so I'm, I never dive on. I, I do some dangerous things, but I'm not going to do that. So, so anyway, I, I was raised, raised in Nebraska. I had that amazing experience of being able to go out and discover nature and spend a lot of time in it. And then at about age 11, just completely fascinated with it. I thought my only my only avenue to sort of keep exploring wildlife was to this is going to sound this is where it gets darker um, <laughs> to to look inside of it. So I started dissecting stuff, right? So I'm cutting stuff open and I'm looking at anything that I can find that's dead. And then I started doing taxidermy. This is in the Norman Bates old fashion. So I sent away for a uh, taxidermy correspondence course and it said even in outdoor life even boys of age 12 can you know can <laughs> complete this <laughs> taxidermy thing and so I did that correspondence course and it was that's where I, I took off. Gary what was your creature du jour what did you uh, what did you stuff and mount you, the, the family dog or something it's how dark does this get grandma <laughs> <laughs> I very quickly, anything I could find. So I literally from, cause you know, a lot of, a lot of sportsmen around. So uh, game birds were the first things I experimented with and then uh, reptiles and anything I could find. And of course, all taxidermist freezers are just filled with dead stuff. And my freezer still is filled with dead stuff because I keep these specimens and people know that I appreciate a good biological specimens so they send me dead stuff so if and there's a pandemic you'll never run out of food <laughs> i don't know if a lot of these are edible objects <laughs> <laughs> anything is edible if it, if you have to so you're a taxidermy kind of kid uh you're in high school and you're stuffing creatures and uh big date getter yeah well, that i'm sure yeah you want to see my cadavers <laughs> baby <laughs> i had this taxidermy fascination and I kept I, I did that all through high school 
I wasn't 100% certain that I could make it into a career or how to really channel it into a living. And I took, I took my first drawing class in college and I went to a natural history museum and we started drawing the animals that were in the dioramas. And I thought, oh my gosh, this is just extraordinary. And I could take my taxidermy, I could maybe apply it to the museum world, but it actually, I very quickly found out that it was much, much more than just taxidermy. It was sculpture, it was uh, research, it, it was painting, it was all these other things. And so I started to, I, I asked if I could get a directed study at that museum and they gave me a directed study. And then the next semester, I actually wrote a, a uh, academic uh, curriculum proposal parlayed my that experience and that sort of love of of learning and natural history into my own writing my own degree what was your first professional display or you know model that you built um the first display i ever built was for the eighth grade biology department (laughs) (laughs) i love it where david rombach uh my science teacher my biology teacher gave me money for materials. And uh, so, so he said, if you were going to, we want a really nice cross section, you know, good cross section. What was it? Uh, it was a whole bunch of things. So it was like a green sunfish and a possum. And luckily a boil, like a big water main broke and it destroyed them all because they were really horrible. <laughs> <laughs> were they sculptures or a uh, little, little- Taxidermy. Uh, oh, they were taxidermy. A sunfish? Oh, a local sunfish. Yeah, not a mola mola. <laughs> I'm sure you already know this, but a mola mola is also known as an ocean sunfish. They're huge, they're flat, they're massive, up to a thousand kilograms, which is 2,200 pounds. They can be as long as seven feet, and they're these beautiful, beautiful creatures that certainly you would not want to taxidermy in a small high school biology lab. Okay, so what was uh, the first like professional gig you got? So after I graduated from college, uh, I, I mean, I was sculpting when I was in college. The first big sculpture that I worked on in college was for the British Museum of Natural History, and it was a 13-foot-long emperor scorpion. And so that was, talk about being thrown in. They were like, hey, have you done much sculpture? And I said, oh, just a little bit. So this would be obviously not to scale something. Much larger than life. And it moved, too. So it had to move. So part of the, my job was, I was part of the team, yeah. So I did the front arms and the tail, and someone else did the body and the legs. And uh, I had just a few few months to do it. And it was just like, okay, here's your sculpture. You know, here's the box of clay. Here's the sculpting tools. Go for it. And uh, they gave me a lot of guidance. And they were a spectacularly talented group of people. So after that, I was hired out of college, right? It had a month off. And then I went to the Denver Museum of Nature and Science. And I started sculpting there. So that's where I met you. And you had done a number of the dioramas. You'd worked on creatures that are in the dioramas in the uh, uh, prehistoric journey display, right? right? The permanent yeah. wall there. That was the first exhibit that I worked on. And I started by making uh, a, one of the big Burgess Shale animals, so which have always been a, always been a fascination of mine. And so, so that's guess, the Cambrian uh, hallucigenia and yep. uh, anomalcaris and Wawaxia. Exactly. Yeah. yeah, those yeah. crazy creatures, which looked like something out of a, an acid trip. If you haven't seen the organisms that live during the Cambrian that are preserved in the Burgess Shale, you should. Google that and let me know what you think. Yeah, they're fantastic. What did you sculpt? Um, the, the first 
first thing I did was a big um, grasshopper. Uh, and then uh, that was the very first project. And then after that, I actually, I worked on one of the Burgess Shale animals, which was Sanctacaris. What is that? A Sanctacaris. It is sort of the great grandpappy of uh, horseshoe crabs and, and uh, mites and things like that. So it's a, it's a real, looks a little bit like trilobite, but it's got a whole bunch of business stuff up front. Lots of, lots of feeding appendages and spikes coming out wow. of its face. You know, I've seen your videos on Instagram and the amount of time and detail you put into your clay sculptures, which is obviously you do everything, most things in clay first. Yeah. But every feather, every bit of feather and or scales. I mean, it is absolutely insane how it starts off as a, as a smooth piece of clay and ends up looking like obviously one color because it's in clay. It looks like the real, real thing. That's nice of you. this uh, Gary as artist to artist when you get these gigs when you are approached to uh, do a gigantic creature of some sort what is your process from start to finish my first thing is I start doodling with a pencil yep. no your first thing is how much you gonna pay me man <laughs> <laughs> it's not about the money man it's is it worth my house. time is it worth my time no seriously I there's got to be like a, a vision that you have in your head first, right? I mean, they say, yeah. you know, I want a sarcosuchus. You've got to visualize it in your what? mind's eye. A Wait, that's not like a giant crocodile from Egypt, is that it? That actually is a giant <laughs> crocodile. But oh. a giant I mean, like something crocodile. longer than a limousine, something yeah. like that? I, yeah. You know, 40 feet long. Your approach to do this creature, do you draw it first or do you, you, you see it in your mind's eye? I've often said, you gotta get this vision in your head of what it's gonna look like and then you work toward, toward yeah. getting there, right? I won't, I won't even start with a, with a concept sketch or anything like that until I gather the literature. So what I start with is a big stack of literature, a highlighter. Give us an example, what was the last? Like that I did today, like I'm working on it right sure. now. Well, let's talk about Megalodon. That's yeah. a fantastic creature. And uh, that I think is going to be one of your legacy pieces for this is a giant life-size Megalodon hanging at the Smithsonian Museum of Natural History in DC, right? Wait one a minute. That, I've never heard of that museum. Is that a little uh, thing off the side there? It's uh, it's a little museum back east. and uh, it's I'm not worthy. The... I'm not worthy. You have a giant full-size <laughs> replica Megalodon hanging in the Smithsonian Natural History Museum. Oh, a lot it's... of shark. That is a lot of shark. <laughs> I'm wondering about your, your process in creating the megalodon that's hanging above the cafeteria in the Smithsonian. Yeah. First thing, you went and grabbed a lot of books on every kind of shark. So walk me through what happens then. Yeah, yeah. So I, I, I figure out, I pull all the literature about, of course, uh, about megalodon that I could. And then all by diving in deep and looking at that, then of course you start to learn about all the ancillary, all the other critters that are, that might be closely related to it. And then those can help inform soft tissues because what do you have with sharks? You got teeth, right? And then in some cases with megalodon, we do have some, some discs, some vertebral discs, but does it, does that tell you a whole bunch about the shark? They're not super diagnostic other than telling you the species. So we have to look at this, a lamniform shark. 
Lemniforms are an order of sharks commonly known as the mackerel sharks and include some of the most familiar species of sharks such as the great white as well as the more unusual representatives such as the goblin shark and megamouth shark. Thank you, Wikipedia. You have to look at things that might be closely related to it where you can have clues for the soft tissue. So I, I pile all this information, I take a highlighter and I, and I mark the things that would be relevant to a restoration. And then what I'll do is I'll, I'll, I'll start by creating an, uh, a, a side view, sort of orthographic views, so top and side views uh, on, in pencil. So very draftsmanship, kind of like no flare, no motion or anything, but just a schematic. And then I'll lay out a small clay sculpture over the top of that and just kind of build and mess with it. And then from that point, in, in the case of Megalodon, we worked uh and uh, a, a variety of scales because the thing is so large if you make a small scale sculpture that's only a foot long but you have to make it 50 times the size of that by the time you blow it up it doesn't scale correctly and it little look kind of like the pillsbury dough shark i mean it, it be, <laughs> there the details that you put in at small scale have to be really refined for them to to read visually at full scale so then what i did is made a one to ten scale shark which is just right at uh, six feet long and then put a ton of detail in that and that's that's where the emotion and the movement came okay and, and what is that made of is that clay and then yeah. Yeah. yeah it's a clay sculpt foam first carve the foam and then, then veneer it with clay and then sculpt that really smooth and then that's going to be our working model then we scan that in about 326 pieces slice up sections of foam glue them all together and then figure out, you have to divide this thing with the tricky bit of it was we had to get through this historical door, which was fairly <laughs> narrow, um, tall but narrow. So you make, your, you make your model, a scale model that's mm -hmm. what, uh, one, one to, to 10? Yep. Okay, one to 10. So for every inch is 10 inches? Or every foot is tenth. Yeah, many? I do. I do. Met, I do metric because that's much easier. Yeah. yeah, much easier to do the math. Yeah, you know what? I, I I love the fact that the metric system is based on our planet's size and it's in base ten. But here we are stuck in America with twelve inches. How do you divide twelve <laughs> inches with a calculator? You take this sculpture and it is as realistic and detailed as possible. Then you scan it, right? Yep. And you're you're stuck with how big your 3D, your cutter, your foam cutter, you, right? Yeah. The whole thing gets made in foam blocks, right? Right. Slices that get mm. glued or attached together. The actual shark itself, how big is the final sculpture? 52 feet long. Whoa. So Which is a uh, modest estimation. Yeah. Did you model it after, let's say, a bronze whaler, or does it look like a great white, or is it a megalodon? It is its own thing. So it was, uh, we had to, we were thinking about the physics of it too, a really big animal. It's a whale sized animal um, that happens to be the biggest, uh, you know, one of the biggest carnivores to ever live. And so we thought about dynamics and we really thought about what would the fin proportions be in relationship to a body as it's a cruiser and how, what, is, what is its hunting style? This is one of the situations where you've got teeth embedded in whale bones and Ray knows a ton about this animal. Um, and this thing ate whales. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, it ate it ate whales for lunch uh, and uh, brunch and uh, snacked on them. And but Gary, so the departure, and you know where I'm going with this is that it's usually been depicted as as is a in, a in a large great white shark. 
right. and the genus, you know, what these are really related to. There's been a lot of debate. Mm-hmm. And um, some of the latest information is that it's staring more toward a sand tiger shark. And so we've right. been thinking about Megalodon wrong all these years. Uh, do you, so you, right. did you buy into that interpretation yourself or did you push back? There were, are you part of the debate? Like, eh, you know. uh, I was right in the middle of it for sure. And that, that's the one thing I, you know, you can never, if you do paleo art, you can never be afraid of being wrong. Right. So uh, there's always going to be something that a new fossil that might prove you, you know, an earlier effort is incorrect, but you just have to dive in if, with the knowledge that you have and hope that you can do the best job given your information. And so, yes, I, we, we wanted to try, Hans and I had this discussion about coloration. And of course, color in shark really, really is a big deal, right? As you know, because it says something about how, where it should go. Right. And a uh, big desire by the museum was to make it as far away to get away from the idea of a, of a scaled up great white as we could. And I said, well, the easiest way to do that is to change coloration, go warm instead of cool. I was shocked. I wanted to know. I was shocked, Gary, that you painted it brown. I was, I. Well, it's a beautiful I, I, kind of camouflage brown, uh, but, kind of a lightish, earthy brown. But it's not a common them. shark color. Yeah. So. Well, why, I've seen bronze whalers that are that color. Yes. It's it's a it's a beautiful uh, it's a beautiful brown, and I've come to accept it now, thinking of sand tiger sharks, which are kind of brownish, but. Was it really merely to make a statement that it was different than a, what's the logic behind the brown with a, such a massive shark? Right. Wouldn't it be out in the open ocean? And What color are the, um, the big, huge uh, filter feeder shark? Uh, the whale sharks. You're the whale sharks. Those are brown. Sharks? No, those are, those are gray. Are they? Yeah. <laughs> Help okay. me here, Gary. Quick aside, the whale shark can be colored brown or gray. <laughs> Well, the philosophy is, uh, and idea-wise, is that they were trying to, yes, the first and foremost was to get away from the lineage. We didn't want people to think it was a great white shark, so just scaled up. So the head shape, you can see, is a little bit different, so it's got a little bit longer nose than is usually portrayed, and we were looking, we were looking at that, that sand tiger um, as a as a guide but of course that's the thing when you only have teeth and a lot of the jaws that have been restored are really funky um, because the way they make them look more dramatic is they they open them up really you know really really wide much wider than they would be in life so um yeah it was a, it definitely the sand tiger was a uh was one of the inspirations behind it um just trying to have have people take a a, a pretty old trope of, uh, for the animal and, and change it a little bit so that it would make them think differently. Yeah, it's cool. I've, I've seen you do some pretty spectacular sculptures. Well, they're all spectacular. You've never failed in my vision, man. Uh, but uh, <laughs> the you Tyrannus that you did then in Miami for Sean, yes. our buddy, uh, for the Miami Science Museum, yeah. Uh, Tyrannosaurus basically with feathers. Well, wait a minute, yeah. wait, wait, but that's common now. It's common to assume that dinosaurs have feathers. And <laughs> in fact, I've seen so many pictures of these polar T-Rexes that are covered in a beautiful soft downy fur trudging through an Arctic landscape. So uh, don't act like, don't be, act like you're surprised, Ray. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, okay. Well, it is an innovation, but it's also a hell of a lot of work to put oh. how many feathers were in that thing, man? 
250,000. Oh my God, was it full size? Yeah, yeah. So the animal's about 27 feet long. That's as big as a school bus. And uh, of course it had to get, you know, we installed it in sections, but we had to make every single feather. And then because, I Yeah, because each... the feathers can't, they can't decay, right? Right, so their feathers are actually made out of a kind of plastic. Each feather is painted three colors. So the root and the body and the tip have their own individual color. And then, then there's a bunch of different color variation on the whole animal, which grades, you know, different in value on belly and then on the back as well. I don't do all this stuff on myself. I have a team of people that are in, <laughs> in the shop with me working. So I have three employees and everybody's got their, their skill that they're really good at. And a lot or others are just generalists. And so I do all the research. In an ideal world, I can make the clay sculpture um, and then just hand it off, have someone make a mold of it. But the, this Eutyranus is spectacular because um, it's a neat, neat theropod. It was in its, its paleo environment, may have been a little bit cooler at the time. There's some different things that, uh, that the paleontologists and geologists have found that lead them to believe that the environment was cooler in that particular spot. And I was in China and I got to actually look at the fossil and see the feathers on it. So they do exist. And then they, and they change shape and size all over the entire body. And this was found in China and it is one of those logger statin where it has the feathers and the soft body parts preserved. Yeah. Yeah. And there's two of them <laughs> in one spot. So there's a smaller one, a 25 footer, and then this 27 footer right next to each other. And the site where they had it, the pieces weren't very large. They were all like the size of a suitcase. So it was all fractured. It worked out so they could carry the pieces out and then it was reassembled. Wow. At the museum. That is so cool. So you have carved out a niche, you know, pretty much all on your own. There's not a lot of people doing what you do in the world, are there? No. There's some big companies that do uh, the exhibit companies, but as far as staying primarily focused on paleo work, I mean, 90% of what I do is paleo. The rest is either wildlife art or, or scientific. Um, art. Yeah, I've seen you do the beautiful sculptures for the, uh, is it the garden at the National Geographic? You did the ants, you did these yeah. beautiful uh, leaf cutter ants out of bronze, and then there's a mm -hmm. giant dragonfly and a praying mantis. And yep. they are giant, they're giant, and they are just beautiful, beautiful pieces of work. What is Thank the you. hardest piece you've ever had to create? I mean, where you literally wanted to, that you lost hair over. <laughs> um, I have lost hair over many. I think, actually, the one that was the most complicated, but I probably enjoyed the most, and this goes back to the archaeological side, I think it was part, partly because of the experience was working on the Iceman. Let's see. Yeah, let's see. He's... Uh, Uti is a 5,300-year-old wet mummy found frozen in a glacier and now preserved on ice at in the Bolzano Museum uh, in Italy. And I was asked to recreate that mummy for a museum in Long Island, New York. And they um, are doing, they're talking about his importance as it relates to our understanding of where we come from based on his DNA. Now, he's anatomically modern human, so that's not going to, that doesn't influence deep time our deep time understanding of, of who we are but the thing that things that we can pick up from that dna even though he was a really fit guy he had a propensity he had genes for heart disease he had lyme disease, he had parasitic whipworms in his belly he had all of these things that we can tell based on um 
his DNA that leave these traces that are included um, in his his individual fingerprint. So it was, and I got to go to Italy and go in the freezer with him and and uh, and take actual measurements. And Marco Simondelli, who's the guy who was the caretaker of the of the mummy, you know, lined us all up in the freezer before we were going to go in and and he said okay no one touches the mummy and of course we're you know except for the physicians and i was like yep yeah, well no no one's gonna touch the mummy no more and he goes except for you and he, points, <laughs> and, and, he, and he points to me and he says is this not important for you you should you should touch the mummy i think as an artist you should touch the mummy and so and i said you know because I, I, I was trained as an artifact handler at the Smithsonian, and the best way to not break something is to not touch it. So, <laughs> um, <laughs> so, so I, I'm fully aware. I've worked on national treasures before, you know, really valuable fossils, things that cannot be replaced. So you just don't touch them if, if you don't have to. But he asked me to physically make that contact. Show me on the mummy where the artist touched you. <laughs> <laughs> also alone with King Tut, were you not? Yes. Yeah. That was, that involved a machine gun though. Uh, what? There. Oh yeah. The, all the armed guards with AK-47. So, so you probably did, were not allowed to touch King Tut, right? I, I did not. I photographed him and I didn't, didn't touch him. So. so wait, when you are with Utsi or King Tut, you have to, if you could 3D scan it, that would give you an accurate rep reproduction uh, in software that you can create and print out but mm -hmm. you have to see texture and color and you have to decide well what material will i make that wrinkled part of the face and are you going to recreate his arrow quiver and and, and the the pathology of his uh didn't he have a, a broken bones or bo uh, that, i mean evidence of external uh yeah. injury and as you see the actual specimen you have to in your mind think Oh, I'll make this out of rabbit fur. I'll make this. How, how does that process yeah. work? Yeah. You can beat the spirit of being close to real objects and, and getting uh, the inspiration from the real thing is so important. And having the privilege to be close to those things is, uh, is really, really important. What do you have in your hand? Do you have a doubloon of some kind? What is that? Pieces oh. of eight, Spanish oh. pieces of eight. From a wreck off the Abrojos Islands in Western Australia, um, the Vergold Drake sunk in 1656. Artifacts are powerful. Because when you, when you think about this pieces <laughs> of eight, all right, it was on a Dutch ship, but where did it start out? It was Spanish silver stolen from the Indians, cut into strips. Then it went across the Caribbean. Maybe it was, this pieces of eight was stamped into this one point. Maybe it was a pirate traded it for a grog, a beer, right? Then somehow it ended up in Spain. Somehow it left Spain, ended up in the Dutch bank, and ended up on another ship going to Australia, which got shipwrecked there. So just as you said, the idea, the story that every artifact Tells, whether it's a bone or T-Rex tooth or a Spanish coin blows me away. And that's why I am a paleo nerd. 
Well, I, I think one of the things too you just talking about with inspiration, Gary, is that you care passionately. And unless you're inspired, unless you really want to see this megalodon come to life and these the gigantic dinosaurs, you have to have a real, you know, fire burning in you. And uh, yeah. that has to come from somewhere. It's not just a job, is it? I mean, it's something you absolutely love to do, right? Yeah, no, it's, it's eternally fascinating. And every single project is different. And if you start your day uninspired, and I all I have to do is just look around my space. I mean, that's why I've made it a museum uh, and realize how lucky I am to be able to do what I do. And, uh, and then just think, you, you, I have no room to complain about anything in my life because I have such a great, uh, a great setup and, and it's, there's so much to be inspired by. Back to King Tut, what did you do with him? He is in a traveling exhibition with artifacts from his tomb. And I, I actually don't know where that mummy is at now that I made. He's behind you. But it was photographed. Um, it was for a, to make a replica to travel without the danger of it dropping and breaking. <laughs> right. Exactly. You know, part of the inspiration thing, I'm, I'm uh, still just kind of holding on to that idea in a way, is that it's the ability to bring a creature back from deep, deep time and let the world see it for the first time. And I've approached you uh, on a few projects, notably the buzzsaw shark, the saber-toothed salmon, the desmostylian. Quick aside, desmostylians are an extinct order of aquatic sea mammals that died out about 10 million years ago. They look like a cross between a manatee and a walrus without the large tusks, of course, and they had very gnarly teeth that were almost forward-facing. Strange, but true. The Pachyrhinosaurus through the wall, you know, those projects that we've, we've worked together. But basically, you and I nerded out on it because I just wanted to see what a Desmostylus would look like in real life, you know. And I got a museum to help fund this thing because <laughs> I got them excited about it. But I knew you could feel the passion and you yeah. brought that to life. I mean, is that what drives you? Is like you want to see this creature come into reality? I don't know how you can go into the field or look at a fossil and not and not wonder what it might look like in life. I mean, that's the that's the time travel element that we do as paleo artists, and we're trying to put ourselves in a unique vantage, which we can't do in any other way except for with art. Creativity is the ability to look at something from a different viewpoint, right? Well, paleo art is like that times two because you're trying to not only look at something in a unique and different way or vantage, but you're also trying to do it in deep, in deep time with the complexity of the science that's wrapped up in, in that. And so God, it's got all of the best stuff. You know, it's got, <laughs> you know, it has, it asks the, these beautiful questions about what life was, what life will be. <laughs> you know, it's, it's really overwhelming at times. I'm one of those, I'm one of those naturalists who can be completely overwhelmed by the beauty of nature and the process involved in how organisms come to be. I just, it just blows my mind how derived, how complex, and how elegant things can be in our world today. And then you, and we know very little about the biology of animals living today. And you have to make that inference, we have to make that inference as artists to the things that lived long ago, which is the, that's the creativity part of it. And that's the sort of, the vision and uh, uh, you're making educated guesses about certain things. There's things we'll never know, but isn't that the 
fun of it, right? Have you made discoveries through the process and recreation of uh, ancient creatures or models? Yes, um, a, a couple times, and I won't name names because this would be poor form. Um, I've, I've been working on a skeleton and I've noticed something or be working with a cast and then trying to figure out how it works in life to make this flesh restoration and notice that something was backwards in a scientific paper twice. And that was something that was flipped and didn't the famous paleontologist cope and marsh didn't one of them put <laughs> a head of a long neck on the tail by accident yes yes no that's plesiosaur. that's a classic yeah the wrong the wrong way plesiosaur uh, ray i worked on the stylinodon and i was so is one of this okay so this is a crazy <laughs> eocene critter yeah right that a land mammal uh, it's a land mammal it's about the size of a panther and or a, a mountain lion and it has the funkiest teeth of almost any animal to ever live, except for Desmostylus. Oh, Go except ahead. for Helicoprion, maybe. Except for Helicoprion. Helicoprion is also known as the buzzsaw shark for its whirl of teeth in the center of its jaw that resembles a swimming circular saw. If you want to know more about the Helicoprion, go to last week's episode with Leaf Tapanilla. <laughs> but yeah, I became I became obsessed with this animal too, and uh, I painted it. The one it, with the jaw, the jaw traps. Incorrect again, Dave. No, this describe it, Gary. It's got these weird L-shaped teeth. It's got big canines that make you think that it would be a rodent. But then, as you move back, it has L-shaped teeth uh, right behind the canines. There's these, a peg, and then an L shape, and then more pegs. So it, it's grinding or clipping roots. It's got huge front arms and big claws on the front, very heavy, heavily built up top. So it's either just digging and then chewing roots up or something. It's, it's less, uh, it's a little lighter built in back, but it's got a long, longer tail. Just, it's got a head like a bulldozer. And, but it's the, the and I had to make a, a rigid model of it, but functionally I was like, well, what the hell is going on with those teeth? So I built the jaw set to see how they would articulate for my own interest to see if I could figure it out. And then I just stuck in the sculpture after I figured it out. But it was just that sort of personal discovery thing I wanted to do and see if I could understand any insight into what the animal was eating and or what if there was something mechanically and special it? about it. it? I, unless I built a full animatronic thing, I probably would never know. But it was... For me, it was just in order to make sure that it was accurate, I made sure those teeth were going to match and marry before I even opened the jaw. That's an Eocene animal that's been found in the Bridger Formation, I think, I or right. down in Colorado. And it's a weird, just one of those early, early mammals, uh, basically, that looks like it could eat trees. <laughs> and uh, very few people know about it. You know, Gary and I nerd out on this kind of stuff. Yeah, and yeah. Uh, Kirk was really uh, Smithsonian was also very much into it. So I did a painting of it. You do that beautiful uh, sculpture that's in Vernal, Utah. And mm -hmm. Is there is there ever a time, Gary, where you've gotten it wrong, and the scientist you did it, and then the scientist came along and shattered your dreams? Don't you cash the check just yet, Gary. <laughs> yeah, we got to get up there and fix that. Actually, there is one case that you and I got involved We're in. It's a little embarrassing, but... Should we, I don't think it's that embarrassing. Um, so this is a this is a uh, a very large salmon, and and Ray had given it the... And Bree's really good at giving, I, I think, branding 
critters with cool <laughs> names. Right. I, no, it's important. It's very important. It is and important. So, it's show business, man. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So, and you named it the saber-toothed salmon. Well, and, others had called it that too. So, it wasn't but me. You is this it. the uh, onorhynchus, Ancorhynchus? Ancorhynchus rastrosus. Show off. And yes. uh, I, I helped popularize this beastie and describe it, Gary. Ah, well, it's, I mean, it's a really large salmon by all standards. So this is a, this is a salmon that's in the uh, over six foot range. Um, and at least the restoration that we made was five and a half, something like that. So you need like 200 pound test line, wouldn't you? <laughs> easily. Yes, easily. But the current configuration or the initial configuration, they found isolated teeth and the, the rest of the skull wasn't because it was squashed, how those teeth were configured. And then they found a pile of, unfortunately, a pile of them, skulls, and the teeth go to the side. They're more like spikes. They stick oh. out of the Oh. Yeah, so it's like more of a spike tooth salmon. Maybe for uh, headbutting their neighbors, they're going upstream. Well, that's that's what it's all about. Uh, the males and females both have them, and it was for fighting in the stream beds because these were plankton feeders. They had twice the number of gill rakers, but the problem was that uh, I had done a large mural with my buddy Memo Haragi at the Oregon Museum of Natural History. I convinced the museum to approach Gary Staub to do a sculpture. And he did a beautiful sculpture based on my painting and his own yep. research. And then lo and behold, they found these, now let's call it something else. So we're now we're calling it, the, I'm dubbing it the Spike 2 Salmon. We'll see if the name sticks. Did you change but, it? I did. I did. Good. But I've yeah. yet to change the mural behind it. So if you go there, you can see. Uh. Well, excuse me. Behind me is the painting that I have in my room here of the saber-toothed salmon with the vampire fangs. So it's wrong. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's actually hanging on your wall, and it's wrong, Dave. I'm going to send that back to you, and you're going to fix that. <laughs> well, therein lies the conflict or the beauty or the twin disciplines of art and science. They do meet, they do cross over, but sometimes, you know, I just say, hey, it's art, so. Yeah, but but wait, but science is, as soon as you answer one question or you're posed a question, it gives rise to 10 more. That's what I love about science. Yeah. yeah. Okay, Gary, what's the coolest fossil you've ever found? The coolest fossil? I found a uh, Parasaurolophus vertebrae uh, when I was in New Mexico at the Denver Museum. Now, that wait, pretty... that is a, hold on, if I can be, uh, here's a ventriloquist trying to guess. This is the big, huge, um, uh, in Jurassic Park, it, it looked like it had a big horn type thing that came off the, the front of the head and the nose. Yeah, it's a hadrosaur. possibly was a sound, a sound generating it definitely device. was a sound generating device. Yeah. So it. Uh, so that was one of the coolest. And then, of course, Ray and I found a bunch of fossils together um, when we were working in snow mass. Uh, That's true. That was like uh, shooting fish in a barrel, as they say. But that was <laughs> snow mass is the uh, ice age site that pulled out mammoths and sloths and the giant bison and all kinds of stuff. Yeah, no, that, that was a spectacular sight. And we Mastodons galore. And uh, yeah, no, you could pretty much dig for a couple of hours or even less than an hour and uh, come up with something. I found uh, some, some teeth and a nice uh, vertebrae or two, but I think you found something truly spectacular there, didn't you? I don't know if I did. I found a ban I found a beautiful banjo bone, one of the uh, a really nice... Banjo bone? What? <laughs> it's part of, it's a mastodon uh, vertebrae. 
but it has the shape of a banjo. So. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So. <laughs> well, Gary, if you could time travel, when would you travel back to? You know what? I've always been fascinated by the Permian. I think the Permian has got some super weird stuff in it. And I don't think most people know much about the Permian. As, a, as an enthusiast who's done research in some of the first illustrations, because I used to do a lot of painting as well, before I moved over to sculpture, I, uh, I did a lot of work in the Permian, and I just think the animals are so weird. The ones that are rendered are, are good, but I think people are, just aren't that familiar with the animals from the Permian. Gary, what do you want to see in the Permian? What are you dying to see in the Permian? I like myself some squishy amphibians, uh, and uh, I like uh, I like some of those weirder, uh, weirder ship things. I want to see a Diplocalus and see what it actually looks like. What is that? <laughs> what is that? <laughs> It's a boomerang head amphibian. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So you have sculpted that. Yes. I have. You sculpted that. So any idea why would it have, so why would this dip, Diplocalus? Diplocalus. Diplocalus. Why would it have this boomerang-shaped head? There's two ideas about why it would have that. One, if you're in a stream or a slow-moving river um, and you want to be able to hold yourself down to the bottom, you could lift the back of the wings up. It could be like the Bernoulli effect, right? So it could be like an airplane wing. It would help hold that animal down. When it saw a bug floating down over the uh, on the water, it could lift that head up and like a wing, up, gulp it, and then back down. Um, or it could have also helped them keep from being swallowed by predators, which I think is less a, of a good answer. But because um, <laughs> I would just eat the body then, not the head. But uh, but yeah, I, I think it's, they're they're so weird and lovely. Yeah, and they would have lived with freshwater sharks. The xenocants would have been in there with them. And I've yeah. drawn that that scene. I'm just wondering, is there a creature that you've longed to uh, sculpt and uh, you've never had a, uh, a client ask you for one? Is there one that uh, Gary just wants to do just because Gary wants to do it? I tend to just do those, and I've ticked off so many of them, they're getting harder and harder to find uh, for me. You've done them all now? No. <laughs> was there one still um, out there that you want to do there's a there's a couple that are i i really want to do i haven't done a sloth yet that would be amazing um there's and there's also a giant hyena from china that i want to do called paki crocuta it's silly big it's like a short-faced bear size hyena whoa i don't know about that one that would be a cool one it's a cenozoic asian mammals let's do a fundraiser <laughs> for that one man go fund me <laughs> Gary, science is under attack nowadays with propaganda. People aren't accepting facts as readily as they'll accept an opinion. So I always ask this of my fellow paleo nerds. What can you do to spread the word that science and facts are real? Well, I have made it a personal mission to address that question is I formed a charter school this year. And so I have, this was the first year we had third and fourth grade. We just expanded it to fifth grade for next year. And, and so now we have three teachers and myself, and it's called LEN, so Learning Through the Exploration of Nature and Science. Wow. And all, the, all of the activities are based in field experiences, like going out and going to a bat cave. I buried dinosaurs bone casts in the schoolyard. So the kids can go out, dig them up, I have a grid, they put the grid down, they draw them so that we learn observation skills, we learn to think about. I give them context because it's always, you're finding a dinosaur boat in the schoolyard. It's like amazing, another one? <laughs> <laughs> How about that? <laughs> so that's personally, I think where change will come is in kids. 
And it's the only, but that doesn't help us now, but kids can change or at least influence their parents. We know that. Addressing issues directly related to adults who don't seem to have any, any ability to reason um, based on facts is difficult. Yeah, yeah. I'm blown away that you have started a charter school in your copious spare time. Absolutely yeah. amazing. That's, that's just beautiful. We have two fantastic teachers, and so I uh, get together with them on a regular basis and write curriculum. And then my, my job is kind of explorer and residence. So I get to, as I said, go out, think of super cool things that we can do, whether they're art that makes kids think about science or field experiences that make them think about animals that in turn think about biology. And we roll that all together. That is brilliant. Congratulations on that. I'm wondering about also the, the biggest gig that you didn't get. You've done some <laughs> amazing things. You know, the life-size Quetzalcoatlus. There, I yes. got it right. Uh, Which is a Texas. giant pterosaur, a giant pterodactyl pterosaur. Yeah, pterosaur. the biggest. I mean, they were the, the size of a, of, a, of a 747 wingspan. No, not that big. Oh, sorry, the a Cessna. 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 Yeah, yeah, yeah. These negotiations on big gigs, you know, big, you know, sometimes, oh, there's these and everybody's on board and then it doesn't happen. Yeah. You know, the nature of being an artist is highly speculative, is it not? And so we find ourselves putting a lot of time and energy and thought into stuff to things that just don't happen sometimes. And so mm. I do, I spend a lot of, a lot of time doing stuff like that. And I'm sure you both do that as well. You've done entire like maquettes of a model and it's everything. And then it many times, many, many times. times. Yeah. So we're, or I'll just have an idea and I want to make it and then try and pitch it later. Um, it tends to work better if I get a direct query from a museum uh, and then I'll If they spend want it, it and you're not pitching it. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Before we go, do you have a question to either Ray or me? Oh, turn the tables. Ah, Actually, I, uh, I'm going to fall back to my default of, of uh, just completely being enamored with both of you guys um, and wondering how and how, how that you do it. But um, I know the story is the inspiration is being there, finding, finding the muse uh, in science. But I, I often wonder how you can keep the gas in the tank, you know, how you don't, how you keep inspiration as an artist. To keep as an artist. For me, it's boredom. If I do something that is unique and innovative, the day after I do it, it's done. And now I need to do something else to, to renew my energy. I had an idea. I'd like to have a velociraptor, full-size robotic creature in my show with blinking eyes. And I spent uh, a year and a lot of money with sculptors and we did made molds and we did foam latex, which it's, it's started to fall apart in my garage. <laughs> and I had sickle claws that were uh, seven inches and it was kind of like a Deinonychus. Uh, it wasn't that scientifically accurate, but in one of my shows, you can see it on YouTube, he opens my show fully robotic, the eyes blinking, the mouth snapping open. And I loved the fact that I had a dinosaur in my show. After that show was done, I've done it. Now, what can I do, you know, build on that or make it better? And, and that's where my inspiration comes from. Once I achieve something in my my career, I need to move on and find something new that's challenging. Well, I think one of the things that happens too, Dave and Gary, is that uh, 
you do these things and maybe if the uh, old uh, gas uh, tank is running a little bit empty, you reach out to a fellow paleo nerd, to someone who shares the interest, but to another creative because you feed off of each other's creativity. And it's really that dialogue and that sense of artistic community. You know, we're doing this paleo nerd show because it's fun and uh, you get that energy. And I've certainly been so lucky to have worked with you, Gary. Um, a lot of times I'm pitching exhibits uh, to a museum, you know, hey, and I, you know, it looks so much better if there was a Staub sculpture over here. Uh, you're very kind. And, uh, you know, they check it out and they go, yeah, it would. Amp it up with some Staub, you know. And, uh, no, but it's really that collaboration. You and I have had some great adventures. Uh, Mr. Strassman and I have had some great adventures, and I hope we get to have many, many more. Yeah, let's do some more adventures. It's been uh, really good talking to you, Gary. Oh, what, a, what a pleasure. Thank you so much for having me on. All right. Well, we're coming and doing a show and tell at your school. Okay. Oh, please. I'm signing everybody up. All right. We're in, All right. We're in there. We're, there. we're in there. Gary, hey, thanks a lot for being on the Paleo Nerds. Thanks, Gary. It was really fun having you, dude. You guys are amazing. Thanks so much for doing this. Hey, Ray, that was an awesome interview with Gary. Yes, it was. It was really great, man. I, I love working with that guy. He is so cool. Yeah, yeah. Um, and you, you've been to his shop, right? I have been to his uh, shop. His actually his old one. That's right. He has moved into a big, big new building. What was he building there when you saw it? He was actually working on the Quetzalcoatlus at the time. Oh, right, right. And that thing is uh, not the size of a 747. I messed that one up. Size uh, you of, know. <laughs> size of a you, Cessna. Yeah, but when you walk in and you see that thing, it, it sure looks like it's the size of a 747. Yeah, yeah. Hey, I've got some good news. Oh? Well, you know, uh, I know you can't see it, but on my wall is a massive painting that you painted called Sabretooth Everything. Yeah. And it has the salmon that you said you painted incorrectly with the, yeah. the Sabretooth on the upper lip kind of coming down. But when I looked at it closely, you ready for this? What? Well, if you're saying the the fangs come straight out, kind of like spikes on the yeah. collar, you painted yeah. these at a 45, not straight down. So you're halfway there. Well, you, thanks, man. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I nerded out on that one a lot, quite a bit. You know, when the whole sideways fang thing came out, like, you know, well, they, maybe they were sort of like, you know, out a little bit. And I went down to the uh, local stream here and picked up some uh, dog salmon carcasses to examine them, these gnarly dogs. And their teeth were kind of pointing outwards a little bit, 45 right. degree-ish. So. Right. Hey, is it possible that these teeth that they found pointing out are maybe the very end of the spawning cycle? Because, you know, these fish, when they enter fresh water, they go through unbelievable changes in just a few days. I mean, literally a few days. They go from looking like an ocean-going fish to these monsters with, with flesh, flesh coming fish, with flesh, fish flesh coming off and humps. Try saying fish flesh, fish flesh ten times real fast. I, I think I understand what you're trying to say there, Dave. <laughs> It's a tongue twister, but it is incredible the change that salmon go through. They're in the salt water, and as soon as they get in the fresh water, their skull structure begins to change. The bone. You know, yeah, the bone actually just starts, you know, morphing out. And within just a few weeks, they've got that it's they've 
got these big sort of kipes is what they're called. And they've got uh, the teeth enlarged. And so, yeah, it's this huge physiological change they go through all for sex, man. So in Ketchikan, where the Creek Street, I mean, it must take them a day to get up, you know, the spawning area, where in the Yukon, it must take them weeks, right? Don't different stream runoffs have different lengths from where they enter the fresh water to when they spawn? Yes, literally in the Yukon, it can go a thousand miles. Uh, here in Ketchikan, you'll see them, they'll enter the creek and they'll take their time. They'll kind of go back and forth. And that's really, it's about a two or three week period where this uh, little fish orgy is going on. You know, they think of one time spawning. They actually get up to this little party scene. They hang out for a while and then all the, the craziness ensues. But with a saber tooth salmon or a spike tooth salmon, they must have had really huge river systems that they were swimming into. You, big fish, you need big rivers. Let me guess, there weren't any humans to dam them all up. That's right, there weren't. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> all right. All right. Hey, listen, uh, we started this episode on salmon, and we're ending it on salmon. So Hey, we literally, I like that. Yeah, we've gone full circle. Man, it's it's a yin and a yang, an alpha and omega. It's the, yeah. I dig it, Dave. You're clever like that. You pulled that one over on me, man. All right, dude. Uh, great talking to you. Great uh, talking to Gary. And uh, we're going to Kearney, Kearney, Missouri. Kearney, Missouri. All right. Uh, talk to you later, buddy. Peace out, dude. Peace out. Thank you for listening to Paleo Nerds. Make sure to like and subscribe on iTunes or wherever you're listening. If you want to learn more about what you heard today, check out our website, paleonerds.com. You'll find tons of pictures and links, including photographic evidence that today's guests and your hosts have been paleo nerds for a long, long time. Again, that's paleonerds.com. Thanks for listening. I'm a paleo nerd. I'm a paleo nerd. I'm a paleo nerd.